0: On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick and We are going to be talking about what is happening in Ukraine. Russia has, as you now know, invaded. Uh, What does this mean? We'll get into that. We're going to talk to Renata Fast, Canadian gold medalist from Burlington women's hockey team. She is back from Beijing now. Bail hearings. Confusing bail hearing this week. What is the purpose of a bail hearing? How do they work? How is there any consistency? We're going to find out about that from a lawyer. Interest rates are going up. Lots of people concerned about that. Should they be? And the Emergencies Act, now gone. Hmm. We will get to all those things. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ukraine has been invaded by Russia. That which has been rumored for a long time is now underway. Several hours ago, just a couple hours before the invasion started, we talked to Dr. Florian Gassner, who is with the University of British Columbia. He is an expert in that region of the world. He's with the Department of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies. He's a former resident of Ukraine. Much of what he said, just a couple hours before this invasion started, was very illustrative. Here is Dr. Florian Gassner.
1: Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
0: So yesterday, now you weren't here yesterday, but we were talking to someone about this yesterday. And the the thing we left off on, and we ran out of time, was, you know, Vladimir Putin does not seem like a man who likes to go backwards. He doesn't seem like someone who's going to want to lose face or show weakness. So what do you do if, you, if you're trying to deal with that? Because he's go it appears that he's going to have to win something or else where do we go? What do you do?
1: At this point, the West is handling the situation, people say, surprisingly well. It's you created a united front and you try to create a deterrence that is effective. And many agree that the sanctions that were presented yesterday were more than most people expected, that they are sanctions that will hit Russia hard and that they were also smart at not uh, doling out all the sanctions right away because it means that they can still tighten the screws. You, you used to
0: live in Ukraine. You know the area well. Uh, you must still know people who are there.
1: Yeah, I was actually just um, chatting with a friend of mine who lives in Kramatorsk, which is not far from the conflict line between uh, the Russia-supported separatists and the Ukrainian army. And she actually works as part of the special observation mission of the OSCE. And they are alarmed, alert. And they were actually just uh, packing just in case and military incursion happens to then flee westwards. So
0: again, you know the area. You can expect, Most people listening, I'm sure, like me, don't know the geography very well. Considering where Russia is aligned or where they're lined up, how easily could people who are near that conflict zone get away? How, how quickly could they get out of the way or could they?
1: In that area... Where she lives, yes, but many people actually live in the conflict zone, like their villages are literally between where the Ukrainian forces are stationed and the Russian backed forces are stationed and they live their lives between these military lines and their lives have been desperate for the past eight years. Of the more than 14,000 people that have died since the conflict began, many are civilians who just stepped on a landmine or were collateral damage from shelling. And so people right there, uh, their outlook is very bleak.
0: What would be your... Okay, let me back up for a second. We would like to believe, whether we're being naive or not, we would like to believe that Western powers, when they go into a war, aim for military targets. And I know sometimes bombs miss, but the the idea is that you're going after military targets. What is your confidence that if Putin was to engage and to invade, that it would be military targets alone that would be hit? Or would this be inevitable that it would be civilian places that would be wiped out?
1: It's difficult to imagine any war that does not also affect the civilian population uh, with uh, death and injury. But in this case, for the past uh, eight years, also, there is also the element of terror. So today, this morning, I saw videos of shells dropping in just small rural towns, not far from the conflict line, like 15 kilometers away from the conflict line, where they're in the town. There is no military station, and it has a lot to do with just striking fear and terror into the hearts of the communities living on the border there.
0: To what end? I mean, you're trying to engage the military. What is the purpose of terrifying the civilians?
1: The most likely incursion that Russia might be preparing at this point is to move westwards from the areas it already has been occupying since 2014, further into Ukraine from uh, the southeast into the towards northwest. And so this would basically be to empty out those areas to prepare the population for the coming incursion.
0: Obviously, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and that's a big issue here because it doesn't sound like a lot of other countries are lining up to bring their military in to help. Ukraine honestly sounds very much alone in this. And if that's the case, how long can Ukraine hold out for against Russian forces?
1: It depends on the level of the incursion, um, because if Russia move, does uh, just engages in quick targeted strikes, so for example, if they want to extend the conflict line in the southeast, or if they want to uh, conduct a quick attack on Kharkiv, which is not very far from the Russian border, there is probably very little that the Ukrainian forces can effectively do to push that back. But if you're starting to think of a whole scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, then geography just has the cards stacked against Russia. Because you have to imagine Ukraine is basically the size of Manitoba with a population that is 5 million people more than Canada. And so even though Russia has amassed a lot of troops on the border, up to 200,000, controlling a territory that size would be impossible with that force.
0: And, you know, we're talking like, like it's an assumed that this is going to happen. I mean, it's depressing and it's pessimistic, but is that your assumption that this is going to happen?
1: I think the most likely scenario is that Russia will try to expand the territories they have in the Southeast, and they basically already alluded to that over the past two days by saying that they are recognizing these supposed republics, people's republics of Luhansk and Donetsk by saying they're not just recognizing them in the current form, but they want to recognize them as representing the entire districts of Luhansk and Donetsk that exist on the Ukrainian map, because right now these territories just occupy a third of these districts. And so Russia already indicated that they are Considering that this should be larger and this type of expansion would be very successful when it comes to uh, picking away at Ukraine of letting Ukraine crumble and fall in the long run, because the southeast of Ukraine only accounts for 8% of the population, but 20% of the GDP. Mm. So if they further disrupt the industry in that area, that will very, um, very much hurt the Ukrainian economy overall.
0: Dr. Florian Gasser, I'm not sure I said what school when I introduced you at the beginning from University of British Columbia, associate professor, Department of Central, Eastern and Northern European Studies. Uh, Thank you so much for the time today.
1: Thanks for having me on again.
2: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: This morning, we woke up to news that Russia had, in fact, as we had long anticipated, invaded Ukraine, a war. I assume a, the word war is an appropriate word here, um, has begun an aggression, an attack, what, whatever word. Uh, let me bring in Stephen uh, Sadman from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. He's also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Sure, Scott. What word would you use? I mean, is war fair, or are we still in an attack or what? what do we call this right now?
3: Oh, well, it's absolutely a war. When one country decides to take the territory of another country, it's always going to lead to war because countries tend to resist that, and the Ukrainians are resisting. They're putting up fighters in the, in the, in the skies. They're, they're they're going to fight. They're probably going to lose, but they're going to fight, and that's going to be a war. Well,
0: the we are hearing all morning of outrage from around the world. We're hearing comments. I mean, uh, our, our country has put out a, a condemnation of this in the states and P- all over the place, and yet. Truly, what does that mean? Because we're not seeing countries lining up to fight yet. What do all these condemnations add up to?
3: Uh, They're the least that we can do at this point in time. Uh, I don't think any country is going to join in and fight alongside the Ukrainians because we do not want to have this escalate into something even more tragic than the current situation. So we're not going to see NATO or the United States or Canada send forces into Ukraine to fight Russians. Uh, We're going to do everything we can to avoid that. But it's going to be the start of economic sanctions. It's going to be the start of of a variety of ways to isolate Russia, to penalize Russia for this aggression.
0: There is certainly, we're hearing that, um, well, at least suggestions that you know, even if you have these sanctions, that China may help Russia out economically or allow them to to handle some of these things. Is that a reasonable expectation that Russia won't really be completely isolated from all the world and won't really be cut off from any kind of funding options? Because there will be some who will help.
3: They'll certainly get help from the Chinese. Uh, China sees this as an advantage uh, to divide uh, the, the world and they have their own irredentist plan irredentism is the effort to take back what is thought to be or claimed to be a lost territory and uh, china has taiwan clearly in its sights down the road so they don't they want to set this precedent they want this to happen more or less um and all sanctions require to be effective uh widespread acceptance of the sanctions widespread enforcement so these sanctions that happen will hurt russia they'll cause pain Most wars of these kinds are very, very self-destructive, so Russia's going to pay a high price for this, but it's not going to be as high as it could be because the Chinese are not going to be on board. This is different from 1990 when Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait, where pretty much everybody in the world lined up against Iraq, um, uh, economically anyway. And you're not going to see that this time because China has some common interests with the Russians.
0: Yeah, and I mean, look, the, I know that China has said that this is not the same as Taiwan. We're not going to do anything with Taiwan like this, and that, that's been. A, but in recent days, Russia also said we're not doing anything with Ukraine. I, I don't know. Uh, I would expect that you can put no credence in any of the comments that Taiwan is somehow safe despite this.
3: Well, Taiwan is protected by its own water border. It's much harder to do this kind of thing over over water than over land. So. China to do this with Russia, it would be much much. trying uh, to do this would be much much harder than what Russia is doing, and China and Taiwan is also a much more capable country, so they can impose quite a bit of penalty on the invading troops.
0: What do you make, if anything, of the timing of this happening now? And and I'll tell you why I asked the question, and because it could have happened at any moment. But if we think back, and this sounds so ridiculous, and, and Stephen, I grant you, this sounds entirely ridiculous, but we just came out of the olympics that were in china and leading up to the olympics we know russia and china met and there were all kinds of people saying look china is telling russia don't do anything that will steal the thunder away from our big world event is there any possibility the timing of this was held off to make sure that china's olympics were not affected
3: i think that's a fair assessment um we we won't really know until you know uh, for sure but uh, I was making that same prediction myself last week that this this was not going to happen during the Olympics because China does uh, Russia does need China and and at least China's uh, it needs China's um, staying out of it it needs China to not enforce sanctions uh, it needs China's goodwill in all of this and so the one thing they could do to help the Chinese out was to uh, not do it during China's big party so they they I think it's very clear they waited until exactly after the Olympics was over with to start this.
0: Which just it, it makes this even more insane, doesn't it? That that you're now talking about we don't want to we don't want to get in the way of a sporting event or as you describe it a party. Uh, fair enough. Um, before we launch attacks and kill people and blow stuff up, I, I mean it, it. It sounds insane.
1: It's not
3: insane. It's it's diplomacy. Uh, you, you know there. What does China care about in? March 2000, or sorry, February uh, 2022, the Olympics. And so if that's that's the country that cares about that. That's one of their interests at that moment in time. And you want their support, or at least they have out of it. Then you do what you can to, to keep them happy. Um, Russia was not trying to keep most of the world happy. It doesn't really care about most of the world, but very much cares about China's position on this. So they did the least they could do, which was pulled off for a little bit.
0: Stephen uh, from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, I know you're going to be uh, having a lot of people wanting to talk to you today. We really appreciate you jumping in. Thank you for this today. My pleasure, Scott.
2: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: I am not an economist. Uh, However, when you do a radio show long enough and talk to a bunch of experts, you start to learn some things. And I've learned a few things over the years, especially about interest rates and stuff. And so you get this situation with our economy where if you have too much money in the economy, too much easy money, low interest rates giving easy money, and not enough goods, which we have with our supply issues, you get this inflation that we are facing. So you have to do something to try and bring that down, which means raising interest rates, which is what we seem to be looking at over the next few weeks. John Athanasiu is a, li- a licensed insolvency trustee out of St. Catharines. John, how was, my, uh, how was my lesson there? Was I pretty close?
1: Yeah, pretty good. Eh?
0: Okay, all right. So I, I, I might pass economics the second time if I had to do it. The, the problem with this, John, and you deal with people dealing with this stuff all the time. The problem with this is, theoretically, that makes a lot of sense. Practically, it makes a lot of sense. But on a human level, there's a lot of people who probably are not really excited about seeing interest rates rising.
4: No, absolutely. And uh, that's what we've discovered in our last uh, consumer debt index survey that m puts on quarterly uh, with uh, Canadians across the country. And
0: I mean, why? If it's if it goes up now, they're supposed to Bank of Canada is supposed to make an announcement next week about this. And I mean, I don't expect that they're going to raise interest rates a ton, but even if it goes up a little, is that enough to cause people real concern? Uh, maybe not in the short run, I
4: guess. But uh, as as it kind of lingers, yes. Um, I think what I've heard now is we're seeing anecdotally anyways, people kind of rushing to get uh, that home purchase in before the actual interest rate uh, increases. Uh, And I guess the other thing to this is an interest rate rise. um, It's it's an immediate impact to people's lines of credits and more upon mortgage renewals. So if it does happen, uh, it may not kind of take effect until those mortgage renewals come into play, you will see it uh, almost immediately on the uh, lines of credit. So that's where you see it the most. Ooh. And then I guess the other side of things is credit card debt, right? So those credit card oh, interest right. rates don't change. Uh, they're kind of fixed, I guess, so to speak. And uh, I think over the last little while, we've seen the credit card debt kind of decrease a little bit. So people are, are a little more comfortable there. But the other risk is the fact what we've been seeing in the real estate market, how, um, housing prices have been increasing uh, quite a lot over the past few years, and anyone who's had trouble, you know, or who's needed money, they've just kind of tapped into that bank, house bank to
0: get mm-hmm. access to money. If you were advising someone then who had a, a mortgage that was not locked in, would you be telling them go out in the next few days and get it locked in as fast as you can? Then,
4: oh, I don't, I, don't, I can't answer that. That's that's like a a banker question. I'm more of the trustee question. <laughs> So, um, I've, I've, I've seen them split down the middle with respect to one way or the other. Some but people here? advocate for one, but the other. Sorry, Scott.
0: No, no, because the the number that we're looking at, there was this, um, uh, there's a report that's been released that says 53% of Ontarians are concerned about the impact of rising interest rates on their financial situation. Now, again, I don't know if a quarter point increase is really going to throw people into, a, you know, a problem, but I don't also anticipate, and tell me if you agree or disagree. I don't anticipate in the long run that interest rates will just go up by a quarter point. If they start putting them up, they're going to continue gently to put them up until things slow down with the inf- inflation, correct? Right. And we're going to see
4: not just one uh, interest rate move this year. I right. think we've scheduled more than one. I think it's so about four this year, at least after this one, to see uh, where the Bank of Canada sits with respect to the interest rates.
0: There are um, there are even high numbers, and I'm trying to find it here on the uh, on this poll, um, that there are people saying, I, I'll go bankrupt if the interest rates go up. And I got to believe that if that's not overstatement, if that's not hyperbole, um, you know, if you want to buy a house these days, it costs a lot to buy a house. And there's probably a lot of people who have stretched themselves to within an inch of their financial life to get in and get that house. And you can't afford an interest rate increase
4: of even a little bit. Right. And so, yeah, we did see that more than four in 10 people in the survey said that They'll be in financial trouble if interest rates rise. Uh, and, and typically what we've seen in historical uh, surveys that we've done is uh, close to 50% of people are less than $200 away a month from uh, wow. you know, not being able to make ends meet. So, you know, a small percentage increase on a four or $500,000 mortgage might, might tip some people over the edge. You never know.
0: And look, it's not our place here to be and I'm certainly not expert enough to be doing this by any stretch, to be preaching to people about what you should have done financially in the past. And that's not going to help anyway, even if we did because you're now in the position you are, but for those who are looking forward, is this the time to be more careful with your money with, be more careful with big purchases? Is that the lesson or is that the warning here?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like if, if, if you can lock in your mortgage, it's probably a good idea. But you know, I guess, start with a budget always kind of take a look at your financial uh, picture on a regular basis you know look at what your inflows are versus your outflows and it, look it's not just the proposed interest rate height that people are facing right now like we're seeing uh pressure from all sides we've got fuel prices that we haven't seen in years at the pumps we've got groceries that are scheduled to increase like grocery prices There was like a canada food agency report released in December that said food prices were going to go up 5 to 7%. We've also got like uh, annual interest rate, uh, not interest rates, sorry, rental rates. Mm-hmm. I think there was another uh, rental market report released by CMHC that said uh, the average uh, two-bedroom unit is going to go up by 3%. And in Hamilton alone, it was 3.7%. So it's like all these small little upticks are going to, you know, like death by a thousand cuts type of thing.
0: But John based on my very rudimentary economics lesson at the very beginning of this if interest rates go up would we expect inflation to slow down then so that yes we're going to pay more for our house but is there a chance we pay less for some of the things we're right now paying more
4: for That's tough to gauge because of the uncertainty around what's happening around us like the covid environment totally threw everyone for a, a tailspin mm-hmm. and I guess there's also our 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 friends down south so I think a lot of it depends on what happens in the U S with respect to what the bank of Canada does as well. So,
0: yeah. And Ukraine, no you know, we're hearing about Ukraine and gas prices and everything. I mean, there's, there's so many forces that are pressing on this right now that, um, absolutely. Uh, it is, um, it is a concerning time for a lot of people. And so let's, let's hope I'm, I'm, I'm touching wood <laughs> as we speak right now that, uh, that, that this is not as concerning in the end as some people believe it will be. Uh, Jonathan I see you really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks Scott.
2: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: There was a bail hearing that was held this week, a very high profile bail bail hearing regarding the convoy in Ottawa. And uh, there were some things about it and the whole bail hearing process that I will admit I didn't understand because um, it, it, it didn't seem the same as other bail hearings so I wanted to bring in someone who can help us understand this system uh Jonathan Eshetu is a criminal defense lawyer uh, Jonathan thanks for doing this very much appreciate you jumping in here yeah, no problem
5: thanks for having me Scott
0: so okay here's the part of the the here's what I want to ask you about because here's why I got confused this week um Tamara Litch who was one of the organizers of the convoy has been charged with mischief she goes for a bail hearing and doesn't get bail which uh, for a mischief charge, I thought, okay, that's a little surprising, but even more so though, when I remember back in the summer, there was a guy in Toronto who intentionally or allegedly intentionally, he's charged with intentionally running over a Toronto police officer charged with first degree murder and got out on bail. And I'm looking at this, Jonathan going, okay, what is the, what is a bail hearing supposed to be for then if these two don't seem to jibe with each other?
5: yeah so look bail it's there's three grounds that basically you got to look at um where you what, to determine whether or not you'll be denied bail so you, you got to show that you're not gonna that you're gonna attend your court appearances um another ground is the public safety and so is uh there's substantial likelihood uh that the uh, accused would um re-offend in any way it doesn't have to be the same offense um or interfere with the administration of justice. And lastly, there is uh, what they call the tertiary ground, which is uh, concerned with the public's confidence in the administration of justice. And really, will will the public lose confidence um, in the administration of justice if uh, the accused is released? What, (laughs) you're right, mischief, mischief is usually a a releasable offense. the issue, though, really comes down to it: is what's the bail plan? The bail plan is is what's going to really determine whether or not this person's going to be released. So, I know in the Miss Lich case, um, uh, Tamara Lich case, the the judge had found that uh, she was not credible, and the surety that she proposed, which was her husband. Uh, there was also indications of him not being uh, reliable mm. or credible. And, and
0: when and when you said that, you know, will the will the system be seen as being credible? Does prof does the profile of the case then factor in? Because clearly, what happened in Ottawa was as high profile a case as yeah. we've seen.
5: It it shouldn't, in the sense that you know, you because it's a high profile case, that shouldn't mean that they get detained, right? Um, it, it it does. It does seem like there, there may be some issues in terms of the credibility of, of the, the, the witnesses, and that might play the role as to why detention. It is a high-profile case, but there are cases um, where they're still high-profile and they get out. Um, but what really, I think, is, is it may that may play a factor into it, but it really shouldn't in terms of the judge's decision. Um, simply because the, the, the whole eyes are watching, mm. um, it may put some pressure, but, you know, it's not a factor to be considering in terms of, you know, uh, all because the whole world is watching that best person should be detained. It, it really, it shouldn't, that shouldn't be a reasoning why.
0: Over the past day or so, one of the comments that I've heard and one of the concerns that some people have had, and I don't know if it's a legitimate concern or not, is you know, we've done very well by and large in this country at keeping politics out of our courts, that our, our judges are not seen as partisan. Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of comments saying, you know, th- th- this this feels to some people like a partisan decision. Mm-hmm. It, it, do you think so? I mean, is there anything to that, that this is a, that that, 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 that politics is sneaking into the decisions? I, I,
5: it, the The thing is, is, I don't know too much about, I don't have the whole decision of the case, so I don't know what all the factors were were decided in there. But you know, judges they're they're human, right? Um, and you know, there are issues and there are points in time where you know, if you get a good JP, that person will get out. But if you got a different JP, <laughs> yeah. you know, you'll, the luck uh, of the draw, right? Win. Yeah, the luck of the draw. So I don't know if it's if it's fully politics or you know, just. Uh, judges, the judge's preference, I would, you know, we would hope that, uh, they would be able to separate their, you know, uh, their, their beliefs and just, just apply the law, but that, that may not always be the case.
0: All right. One um, other thing then about the, 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 justice of the peace, cause I think it was, yeah, it was, uh, it is a justice of the peace who would have heard this. Here's a quote that was from the ruling, And I was struck by it because, well, I'll read it and then tell you why I was struck by it. And you'll probably figure it out before I even get there. This community has already been impacted enough by some of the criminal activity and blockades you took part in and even led. You've had plenty of opportunity to remove yourself and others from this criminal activity, but obstinately chose not to and counseled others not to either. It goes on. That's not saying you're charged with this. That's saying you did this. Is that commonplace?
5: So when when you take it in a bail hearing you know um it's basically the crown's highest case and so what you do have the presumption of innocence but there may be the evidence that's produced could suggest that the crown has a strong case against the the accused in that manner so and in, and in this case she was there we all saw that she was there i mean there's no yeah. question yeah exactly so I, I think it it there there's the judge can make that or the justice of the peace can make that finding in terms of that. I think that, you know, this is the Crown's case is very strong against you. And so, you know, there there's issues in that regard where this is what she did. It's obvious that she did that uh, based off of it. But they really it's not bail is not a place where you you try beyond a reasonable doubt. The Crown's case is it may be the strongest right now, but, you know, that's unchallenged. And that's, you know, maybe based off snippets of uh, whatever disclosures provided. You know, we, defense counsel is really at a, a limited ability to to challenge the evidence uh, because they don't have disclosure um, and they're only given, you know, a synopsis. So, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I, you know, I, I would think that she should have been uh, released in some way um, considering it. But. It doesn't mean that she can't be released in the future if she proposes a different bail plan. Can you know, come a
0: bail it was it was again for a number of reasons one as you say the charge of mischief now i've learned looking into it i mean you can be you can go away for a long time for mischief yeah. i mean it sounds like it's sort of a uh, mischief sounds like almost flippant or fun but it's not it's it's a serious charge but yeah um yeah no i mean th- there were a number of things in this one that really sort of i think were uh, unexpected for a lot of people and and i really appreciate you uh, helping us through this jonathan ashetu thanks for doing this really
5: appreciate the time No problem. Thanks for having me, Scott.
2: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Most of you, I'm assuming, either stayed up very late the other night to watch the game at the Beijing Olympics or certainly saw the highlights on the next day. I'm talking, of course, of the gold medal game in hockey, women's hockey between Canada and the U.S. Three local women on that team for Canada. Emma Malte, Sarah Nurse. And my next guest, Renata Fast, who is back from Beijing wearing a gold medal. Congratulations, Renata. Well done.
6: Thank you so much, Scott. It's uh, exciting to be back home.
0: Uh, have you taken the gold medal off yet, or is it just now a permanent fixture?
6: <laughs> yep, I sleep with it on. I No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think I slept with it on the first night, but uh, since then, it's, it's come off. I don't want to damage it too much.
0: But I'm guessing that now it's, I don't know how many people you've seen yet. Cause I don't know how long you've been home, but I'm assuming now everybody you bump into wants to see it. You have to carry it with you all the time, right?
6: Yeah, definitely have been carrying it with me. I haven't gone out too much, but, um, around my family and friends, I've been bringing it along so uh, they can check it out.
0: How often though, have you honestly, cause I know like for, for women's hockey and there may come a day, we hope when there is a you know, a professional league that pays well and all the rest. But for right now, a gold medal in the Olympics is the top of the mountain. And so I wonder how many times you have caught yourself pulling it out and just sort of quietly just staring at it for a few moments that you got this.
6: Yeah, definitely. A couple of times I've uh, sat down and just really taken it all in and checked out the medal. I mean, every time I look at it, there's something different that I notice on the medal that, um, I want to look up and see different meanings of things, but, um, yeah, just to sit down and to realize that, you know, we achieved this gold medal. And like you mentioned, this is the peak of women's hockey. Um, so, so to get there and to know how hard this group has worked to achieve it, um, it's pretty special to, to take it in.
0: When did you, if you can think back this far, when did you start thinking about that as a possibility? That, that someday down the road, possibly, maybe if everything went well, I might maybe be able to play in the Olympics, let alone win a gold medal. How far back does that go?
6: Well, it's funny. If I look back, like I've always been in awe of Olympic athletes, and in particular, obviously, the Canadian Women's National Hockey Team, Um So I I remember the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics and Canada capturing gold on the men's and women's side. And obviously 2010 sticks out in my mind as I was, I think, in grade 10 at the time. So a little bit older. Um, And I was in all of these athletes, but I had aspirations to get there. But I don't know if I fully believed that I would achieve it ever. Um, At the time, I was never really on the radar for Hockey Canada. um, And it wasn't until my second year in university at Clarkson University and my team, made it to the frozen four and we ended up winning the national championship. And that year we were really low on defensemen. um, And there was only four, four defensemen playing in the, in the final games. And so I got a lot of exposure and I played in a ton of different situations. And that's when I really started to get noticed by hockey Canada. And after that, I went to my first, I, I was selected to my first team, the development team for hockey Canada and to be surrounded by other players in that program and to see, the way they train and the way they work. Um, that's when I started to think like, maybe I can do this. Like I'm, I'm not as far off as I thought yeah. I was. So it's always you, been a dream, but
0: yeah. Yeah. You went to a little, this is your second Olympics. So you've gone through this last time you got a silver medal. Now, some people on the team, this was their first Olympics. They come in, they get a gold. It's all beautiful. Is there something good? Not that you wanted a silver last time you wanted a gold last time, but is there something good about having lost there to really allow you to even more appreciate how hard it is to win a gold medal?
6: Yes, 100%. Uh, uh, as much as that silver medal hurt, I don't think I'd change a thing. These last four years have been difficult for external reasons, obviously, with, with the pandemic. But also just it required that silver medal required our program to take a step back And to put in the effort to change things that needed to be changed and to evaluate ourselves as individuals, as teammates, as players, and to see how we could get better as people. Um, So this gold medal is so rewarding because of that silver medal and because of the struggles we went through as a team and as a program. And to see the changes that were made and the work that we all put in to be the best in the world, um, it makes this even sweeter. And I wouldn't change a thing, even though it was so hard in 2018.
0: What's so ironic about what you just talked about, though, is, uh, and I don't know how much you know about this, but while you were over there, there were people saying, look, the women's game is not competitive. Canada and the U.S. are just obliterating everyone. Does it really belong in the Olympics? And I think the irony here is um, you guys work so hard to be able to beat the states. The states work so hard to be able to beat you guys that. You know, the pack was closing a little bit and it looks like you guys sort of stretched it again just because that that rivalry pulled you away from the rest of the world.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, there's no doubt that women's hockey is growing and obviously Canada and the US have been powerhouses for, for years and years, but um, we've seen other nations get stronger. And the thing that's unique is in a year of an, an Olympic year, Canada and the US have the funding to, we call it centralization. So we bring out, that both teams bring out like 28 girls and they train full-time together as they prepare for the Olympics. We're the only two nations that do that and have the funding and the resources to do that. All the other countries, they don't have those resources. So in an Olympic year, I feel like the disparity might even be more amplified only because we're together full-time. Yeah, there were some lopsided scores, but those other countries are still progressing and they're still getting better and we've seen them get better year over year. Um, and I know there was talks in the media, um, definitely frustrating for us to read some of that stuff, but, um, by us playing those games hard and and playing those other nations, the way we played them, it'll make them better. So, um, it's, yeah, it's exciting, but in an Olympic year, it's amplified because we spend so much time together.
0: When you played in the round robin against the States, um, you guys won that game as everyone knows, but they outshot you guys. Like, they got a ton of shots in that game. Was there any discussion in the dressing room after that that, yeah, we won, our goalie was amazing, but uh, geez louise, we better be better than that in the gold medal game, because I don't know if we can do that again and win.
6: I think the Americans head coach said it perfectly after the game in the media. Um, He said, he was asked the question around, you know, you guys outshot them, like, but the score, and he said, yeah, you're right, we outshot them, but shots are shots and shots aren't goals. And goals win ga- Goals win games. And uh, that really stood out to our team because um, the Americans have been a team historically that shoot the puck a ton. And Canada, not as much. And if you look back at the chances that the American team had versus the Canadian team, they didn't have many grade A chances. They had a lot of shots, but we kept them to the outside. And it's funny because I was roommates with our goaltender and Renee Debian at the Olympics, and we were talking about the game after, and she goes, the game was easy, that round-robin game. She said, I got a lot of shots, she goes, but I was square to every puck Hmm. because they didn't make me move. The pucks were from outside, and you guys did a good job clearing rebounds. So it's funny, um, there was lots of people talking about the shot disparity, but if they're not grade-A chances, we'll allow them to shoot the puck if they want to shoot the puck because we know we have the best goaltenders in the world.
0: Perfect. We've got to run. Uh, unfortunately, I wish we could talk for a lot longer, but Renata, have you given any thought to how now being an Olympic gold medalist changes your life? Because that's <laughs> pretty cool to be able to put that on your business card now or wherever you put it.
6: <laughs> I haven't thought too much into it, but uh, obviously it's, it's so special and um, more opportunities arise when you're an Olympic gold medalist for sure.
0: That is Renata Fast, Olympic gold medalist from Burlington, member of Canada's Women's National Hockey Team. I really appreciate the time today and congratulations. Great job.
6: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister announced that the Emergency Act, which had been put into effect, has now been taken away. It's no longer in effect. Let me bring in Alan Hutchinson. He's a distinguished research professor at Osgoode Hall Law School. Uh, Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. So Monday night, so a little over two days ago, we were seeing a debate that it was urgent to okay this because we had to have the Emergency Act in place. And two days later, we're told, nah, so it can go away now. What changed in those two days? Do we know?
7: Well, I think, first of all, you have to have a background to this and the act under which the federal government claimed powers is very clear that this is a temporary emergency. You can only exercise these powers in a temporary emergency. So it's not really a big deal that having dealt with the source of the emergency, they then folded the act. I mean, I actually would say that doing this as quickly as they did, there are still many questions, but it's not a bad thing because these are special, extraordinary powers, and therefore the sooner we can return to what would be considered the normal situation, the better.
0: Now you are, I mean, you are an expert in issues with the law and not necessarily, well, maybe politically as well, but I I wonder if you believe there were any political considerations in this because the, the prime minister and the liberal party was getting not kind things said about them around the world, even from some publications that would have normally been seen as very friendly, the New York Times, for example. And there were rumblings that the Senate might not just rubber stamp this, and that could be a... A bit of an awkward position.
7: Do you think there were politics involved? There are always politics involved. There's never anything called, you know, an exclusively legal issue when it involves any government. So I think they had all kinds of calculations. I mean, I think that I know that there are challenges taking place to the exercise of these powers. And the question will be um, a number of things. One is whether the conditions for declaring a public order emergency, that there was sufficient endangerment of people's lives and safety. And also importantly, that whether the government already had the ability to deal with the protesters. I think one of the backgrounds to this that gets lost is the federal government normally would not have any power to deal with these kinds of protests because they were a provincial matter. So if the federal government want to do anything, they need some special powers and the Emergencies Act gives them those powers. So that's a bit of the background. And of course, there's a lot of tension between the provinces and the federal government over what can be done, what should be done. And so I think that's an important background that gives it some uh, context.
0: There are, and we've had it in our news all morning today, um, there are groups around the country that had said they were going to sue about this to to challenge this in court. They're not sure if they're going to continue because the Emergency Act has now been taken down. Would you, as a lawyer, as a professor, would you want a lawsuit still to go ahead if only to establish whether or not this was an appropriate use to know for next time? where or when this Act should be brought in and when it's a, a, appropriate to bring it in?
7: Yeah, I think it's important. I think the there are provisions in the Act that allow uh, for challenges to the government and even compensation in some circumstances. But I think the force of the uh, litigation, is, insofar as I understand it, is that it's trying to put a check on future governments or to clarify at least when governments can exercise or... Um, initiate this act. I think that's that's not a bad thing, but it seems to me that if you know anything about the history of the courts, they're very much likely to defer to a political de- decision by the government as to what counts as a sufficiently urgent, critical and temporary situation. There's some precedent about this that goes back a fair way, and the courts are very l- reluctant to challenge what are seen to be um, political decisions in um, difficult circumstances,
0: and and, and you're uh, of course you're you're absolutely correct, of course. And, and I I also wonder though almost if the government would want a court trial to set a standard because, you know, we talked about politics a moment ago. You and I both know that the next time there is some sort of blockade on a pipeline or on our railway railway track for issues environmental or whatever it, any group now that does anything there are going to be calls saying well you didn't you brought in the emergencies act for this group why not for this group it it almost makes sense to take it through the courts and have it clarified about when it's usable
7: Yeah, I mean, I think people, perhaps including yourself, have very romantic notions about how insightful the court will be. Their (laughs) track record in these matters um, is not great. But I think one of the the questions that does arise, which crosses both law and politics quite clearly, is um, would the government have been as slow to act if it had been an Indigenous demonstration or if it involved Black Lives Matter And I think that the real question here is not so much that the government introduced the emergency measures, but why did the provincial government wait so long in order to stem this kind of activity insofar as people felt that it should be stopped and that it was illegal? There were plenty of powers available to the provinces because this is a provincial matter, Um, which could have brought this to an end. But clearly there wasn't an appetite to do that. So there's an element of passing the book to the federal government. And the only way the federal government really could have acted was to bring in uh, some special powers because otherwise, at least as I see it, they'd be trampling on provincial rights. For
0: sure, for sure. We got to run. I'm going to try and cling to my romantic notions, but who knows, they may be stomped down. Alan Hutchinson from Osgoode Hall Law School. Thank you so much for this.